So I uh, want to say Happy New Year to everybody. This was my first chance to get uh, first Sunday, I guess, of the new year. It uh, seems like we've been at it for a long time, doesn't it? Uh, we're already a week deep into it, but uh, Happy New Year. And uh, I want to encourage you, too, someone was reminding me uh, a little earlier that two weeks from this uh, Wednesday, uh, we'll be starting back our My, Tur- My Journey uh, class series uh, for children, adults, students, everybody. Uh, we'll be hearing more about that. There'll be some, several opportunities to be involved in. So get that on your calendar on Wednesday evenings, and uh, it'll, be, uh, it'll be a great time to share together. We run for six weeks, so uh, it's not a lifetime commitment. It's just a short time, but it really will help you spiritually as you invest in your maturity and growth. So we're glad that those are coming up and hope that you'll be a part of that. You know, I'm the kind of guy that likes to finish things. Um, that will surprise my wife a little bit. Uh, because there are some things at home I haven't finished. Uh, but, but overall, for the most part, I like to finish things. I like to finish a conversation that needs to be had. I like to finish um, a, a project that I've started. Uh, you can tell by looking at me, I like to finish a good plate of food. I don't leave a lot of food on my plate as well. Uh, I like to finish a mission that's been given. That's why we're going to keep going in our study of the book of Acts. Uh, I want to finish it, all right? Uh, however, I will say this, we've been going kind of verse by verse, and we're going we're gonna to pick up the pace a little bit, and we're going to look at some topics as we come to them, uh, more than verse by verse as we have done. So it's going to take us a while to finish 28 chapters, but when we get done, you will say you've studied through the entire book of, of Acts. And I think it's also important for us to see the mission that God has given to us uh, as we kind of see, because Acts is how the church began and the church grew rapidly during that time and how it gained momentum as it spread around the world. So it's important to kind of keep looking through this book. And also we're going to see some several familiar names even today as we continue to see their, their character, their maturity, their leadership grow and develop as disciples. So today uh, we're going to begin in Acts chapter 11 and then we'll go from there. Verse 19. So now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw that what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. And then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. And so for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, one of them named Agabus stood up and through the spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. And this they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. So we're kind of seeing the daily life of the church pick up. And there's some names that we recognize. We remember Stephen. Stephen was the first Christian martyr. He's the one who inspired and sparked the first mission effort as persecution, beginning with him, uh, spread, and Christians began to leave Jerusalem and travel everywhere over the known world. And now the gospel is going to more and more Greeks and Gentiles. A few weeks ago, we talked about the first, um, how the gospel had kind of broken out of the Jewish 
community and into uh, the, the Gentile community. And specifically, right in our scriptures, happening in a city called Antioch, which had a population of about half a million people. That's a lot of people to begin to hear the gospel who are receptive to what it has, has to say. And, and things were really begin to pop there in Antioch. And so the apostles back in Jerusalem were excited to hear that. So they chose a man named Barnabas, another man that we remember. Remember talking about him several weeks ago. He was the first one to begin selling his home and land to help people who were in need. He's also called the son of encouragement. And so he's tapped to go to Antioch and, and to preach and to minister to the people there. And it notes that he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith. Everybody loved Barnabas. You know, he was an encourager. People just had to like his personality. So when he had been at Antioch a while, he went to Tarsus and he got his friend Saul. And we talked about him as well a few weeks ago, who had been out of the picture for a while, being trained and prepared for ministry. And he took Saul back to Antioch with him. And there they stayed for a year, which was a long time in that day for a missionary to stay somewhere because they really were investing in the church, meeting with the people, teaching large numbers of people. Many people were coming to Christ and a prophet warned that a famine was going to be coming and they ought to prepare for that. And so the church at Antioch, which was wealthier than many of the other churches, they took up an offering, sent it to the believers in the hands of Paul and uh, Saul and, and Barnabas. And, and this kind of generosity was beginning to, to flow, and we experience that today. It's a sign of increasing maturity among disciples when people are willing to give financially. But Antioch had another important distinction. That's what we're going to focus on today. In verse 26, it says, the disciples were first called Christians, or called Christians first, at Antioch. And I think what this shows us is that Jesus' disciples were beginning to develop an identity of their own. They were identifiable. They were not just a subgroup out there of people that were, were meeting. They literally were starting to grow and expand and have an identity. And the name Christian was probably given to them as a slur. Probably all those Christians, you know, where they would say it. Kind of like people do today when you think about it. Kind of mock it a little bit and like, critical a little bit. Uh, so they were probably given, to, uh, given that name in, in that form. But, you know, they begin to think, why not embrace that? Because that's what we are. We are little Christ. Christian means little Christ. So let's embrace that. Let's just be called Christians. And so today, 2,000 some years later, we are called Christians as well. Thanks to the people of this obscure town, unknown to us, but called Antioch. It's kind of our history. It's who we are. But let me ask you this. Have you ever thought what has happened since then? I mean, we're, we're talking back 2,000 years or so and here we are, 2024 now, and a lot, is, a lot of water has gone over, right? A lot of, a lot of water has flowed by. And one of the things that I want to do when I began the, the study of the book of Acts was to talk a little bit about how we got from there to here. Sometimes I think it's good to know what our history is, you know, where we came from and what's happened along the way, uh, the good and the bad. And, you know, unfortunately, those, both those things are, are a part of our history. How has the church survived and how has it often thrived down through the years? How has the church corrected itself? How do we get to where we are today? And why are we still called Christians? So I'm going to take a few moments this morning, and I want to kind of spring from this scripture we read here uh, in Acts and, and talk a little bit about uh, some church history. Now, obviously, uh, we can't cover all of it, and I'm going to try to hit the, the high points and the most interesting points, obviously. But I, I, to me, it's fascinating to kind of see where the church has come and been throughout, throughout the past. And so we're going to begin where we just read. The book of Acts basically tells us how the church began. If you've been with us, you know that it began on the day of Pentecost. And 
The Holy Spirit fell upon them and they began to grow. We saw the rapid spread over the Roman Empire, the known world at that time. And the leaders of the church, obviously the early church, were the apostles. They were the ones uh, that led the church. And uh, we're starting to see now some other generations of leaders happen. They began to pass their faith on to others. They began to commission them, and we'll see it. Some of them were commissioned as missionaries, and they were sent out by the laying on of hands. They gathered around them, put their hands on them, prayed for them, and sent them out. That was a, just a way of, of recognizing what they were doing. And so they had to establish new leaders, and that's what was happening, a new generation, which is still important, right? In fact, new leaders have to be raised up all the time in order for anything to continue on uh, and to survive. And so Jesus' plan was that the survival of the church would depend upon faithful teaching uh, of doctrine and also practice of that. Every generation, including us today, uh, has to pass the torch down to the next generation. And in fact, in 2 Timothy 2, Paul says, and the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. And so part of what the church has to do is you take what you hear, what you learn, you absorb it, you embrace it, you incorporate it into your life and integrate it, and then you pass it down to other people. Every one of us ought to be responsible for that. Because if we don't, what's the next generation going to look like, all right? So it's important to understand that's how anything valuable is passed down, legends, family history, anything else. And the most important thing we can ever pass down is the gospel. And so the gospel and the church has gone through, down through the years victorious. It has survived a lot, right? But not without some challenges. And that's what I want to talk a little bit about today. Not in criticism, just in facts and what's happened, all right? So about 600 AD, there was an institutional arm of the church that became known as the Roman Catholic Church. It was complete with its own hierarchy, its own uh, doctrines and liturgical distinctives. But the Roman Catholic Church believes that the survival and, and success of the church depends not as much on the, the, the teaching and doctrine and practice of the gospel, but it tend, depends mostly on the ones to whom succession is given to. And so there was established of uh, the Pope, cardinals, bishops, priests, basically an institution was set up that has basically final authority over the church. And for the institution to have authority, obviously there has to, it must possess the gift of infallibility. In other words, the church is always right. That's what, that's what it means in order for it to be, to be able to, to pass down and be correct, right? So in the Roman Catholic Church, the Pope has the uh, infallible authority to guide and direct the church in matters of faith and practice. And we see that today. Periodically, there'll be a statement that is, that is passed down from the Pope about where the church is and what their stance will be on certain things. Now, we would disagree with that. We would say that the institution doesn't have final authority because churches made up of people oftentimes make mistakes, right? I certainly make my share of mistakes. So we would say that the institution itself doesn't have that authority, but instead that the scripture has the authority. Now, there is no doubt, not being critical, but there's no doubt that the intention was great, but human institutions always have the tendency to go sideways in most cases, and that's what happened in the Roman Catholic Church, which led to a lot of political involvement of the church and a, a host of other abuses, including the, the Crusades, you probably heard about the Inquisition, uh, the simony, which was the selling of political offices, indulgences, which are special privileges you can purchase 
protection of the church leaders who were corrupt. And so the Roman Catholic Church became deeply involved in the political life of Europe at the time, and that combined with the church's uh, continuing increasing power and wealth undermined the church's spiritual authority. Now keep in mind that this was an institutional arm. This wasn't all believers. There were believers, there were churches who were outside of the Roman Catholic Church, and that was the remnant that that was uh, trying to remain true to the scripture as the final authority. So the church at that point was the need of correction, and that's what happened in the 16th century in what was called the Protestant Reformation Movement. One of those men who kind of began it early was a man named John Wycliffe. Uh, He was an early reformer. He said Christ was the head of the church, not the Pope, that the Bible was the sole authority of man. He opposed practices such as transubstantiation, which is the idea that when you take the communion, it literally is the body and the blood of Christ. See, that was being taught, and people thought Christians were cannibals, you know, for eating the body and the blood of Christ. So that didn't help uh, the, uh, the, the image of the church at all. Uh, he also opposed private mass for the wealthy, extreme unction, which is last rites, and purgatory, which is the idea of purchasing people out of, out of hell. And so he was branded a heretic by the church, of course, because this one against church doctrine. Now, to this point, also keep in mind that the common person didn't have any idea what the Bible has to say. They were trusting clergy and other people to tell them uh, what the Bible said because the Bible had been translated the Old Testament from Hebrew, the New Testament to, from Greek to Latin. It was called the Vulgate, if you ever heard of that. The Vulgate, but only the clergy spoke and read Latin. So that didn't help the common man very much. So a man named John Wycliffe, again, translated the New Testament into English in 1382, but copies were rare. The only way to really have a copy was if somebody wrote it down, and there were, you know, concerns about accuracy in that. And then in in uh, 1454, what had been called the greatest invention in mankind in history was invented, and that was the printing press by a man named Johannes Gutenberg. And you might imagine the first book that came off they were excited about, but it actually was the Bible. And it was called the Gutenberg Bible. And if you had one of those off the press today, you'd be a millionaire, all right? There weren't a lot of them, but they were valuable for a lot of reasons. And so then suddenly books were able to be printed. And by the early 1500s, the Bible was available in English. And the goal was that every common man would have a Bible. We can thank a man named William Tyndale for the English translation that, that we have today. So as people begin to read the Bible for themselves, they begin to see the abuses of the church. And then in 1571, a priest named Martin Luther nailed 95 theses or 95 objections that he had to the church to the door of his own Roman Catholic church. You can imagine this one over really well, but he nailed those up on the door and this literally sparked the Reformation. Luther was commanded to recant all of those things or to be excommunicated from the church, but he would not recant. And some way he survived because the church often would put what whom they doomed heretics to death, and many were, but, but Luther did not put, was not put to death. But soon other reformers spoke up, like Ulrich Zingli and John Calvin. And under pressure and all of this, the Roman Catholic Church was forced to um, uh, examine themselves in what was called the Council of Trent, addressing the corruption of priests and leaders of the church. But then they doubled down on the church's infallible traditions and their papacy. And many of those reforms came actually from within the Roman Catholic Church itself. 
And, and it was called the Protestant Reformation. And the reason they called the Protestant Reformation was because they were protesting against the church. So if you ever wonder where the word Protestant, that's where it came from, they were protesting. Now from the Reformation movement came the Protestant church as a whole. And so many of these uh, reformers started their own denomination. Now I will say that, maybe that isn't totally correct. The people who were, they were influenced by, their, that, that they were their teachers, they began these after these folks had passed away. But Martin Luther, from him came the Lutheran church. John Calvin, from him came the Presbyterian church. John Wesley, the Methodist church. But also, obviously, down through time, many other denominations have been established through the years, like Episcopalian, Anglican, Baptist, Pentecostal. I, I checked this morning. In the United States, there are over 200 denominations and worldwide over 45,000 denominations. Now, I would say that most of these reformers and leaders did not at all plan for there to be a group named after them. I don't think any of them wanted that, and I don't think that's what Jesus had in mind for his church. Remember, getting back to where we started, that Christians were, believers were first called Christians in a place called Antioch, uh, not some man's name or a denominational title. And so that was what the original plan was. And as you probably know, denominations cause division. You know, even among Christians, there sometimes is competition and criticism. Sometimes we people feel like they're the only Christians, right? And there's division. And sometimes we think the enemy is some other believer when the enemy is Satan. He's the enemy out there. We're not enemies of one another, all right? So these things sometimes line people up and cause division. Remember Jesus prayed in John chapter 17. He said, I pray for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that when the world may believe that you have sent me, I have given them the glory that you gave me and that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought in complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and you have loved them even as you have loved me. So what I see here in this prayer of Jesus near, near the time of his crucifixion is that Jesus knew there would be divisions, there would be problems within the church, and he's pleading for unity. He's pleading for unity. See, the, the search of Jesus Christ is, is made of humans, and because of that, we make decisions that aren't always in line with what God would have us to do, just like we as individuals do that. But the church of Jesus Christ is always evolving, not always correctly, as we've just seen here uh, in the last few minutes down through history, but the church is called to account as we try to align back with the Word of God. Now, another attempt to align the church with Scripture was made early in the 19th century when various members from many different denominations determined that they felt like they had drifted away from the basics of Christianity and followed men in their teachings. In fact, many of the denominations had actually set up their own hierarchy, similar to the Roman Catholic Church, which they had left out of, and developed their own traditions and teachings in addition to the Bible, what they might call creeds today. So the 19th century, if you know much about it, it was a time of, of revival and renewal. A lot of things were happening. A lot of things were changing. America was being colonized, and uh, just a lot of things were happening. Here in America, there was a time of great revival, and during that time, there were six separate groups that were organized independently without any knowledge of each other's easy existence all over the country, several parts, especially the eastern, or the, yeah, the eastern part of the United States. 
And then no, no one coordinated this. Nothing was happening collectively, but there were six groups that were kind of um, trying to, to, you know, to realign the church with Scripture. And in every case, their goal was to restore the New Testament church as it was in the Bible. In every case, they determined they would call themselves just Christians. They would just be Christians. And collectively, their efforts led to the restoration movement. Now, there's a lot more history, obviously, behind that, but that's just kind of the high points to kind of tell you what was going on at the time. Now, let me ask you this. What does it mean to restore? What does it mean to restore something? Let's say that you bought an old house and you could tell by the bones of it that it was really something when it was built. That it was amazing. It was incredible. But down through the years, it had declined and the years had not been kind to it. And people had added on and changed things around. And your goal was to restore that that house back to its original uh, condition and beauty. And the problem was that you didn't know what it looked like to start with. You'd never seen it yourself. How would you go about restoring the old house? I mean, you could remodel it, which we do a lot. You could go in and put, you know, vinyl siding over the wood. You could, you could go in and tear out some walls and, you know, and re- realign the house and everything. But if you really, uh, if you did this, you might have a beautiful house, but you really wouldn't have restored the house to how it was when it was built. But let's suppose that while you were looking it over, you got up in the attic and you found a set of plans from how the house was originally built. And you also found some photographs, uh, black and white, of course, of what the house looked like whenever it was built. And so now you know what it looks like. Now you know what, uh, what, it, what the original plan was. And so if you returned it to its original state as it was planned, designed, and built, and how it looked and how it you know, functioned and everything, then you would have truly restored it. So let's take that analogy and say, that if we take the church of the day and try to reform it, we're not going to necessarily bring it back to its original simplicity and purity because we don't naturally know what the church was like on our own. You know, we might have an idea of what a church ought to look like and what they ought to do and believe and think and everything. But if you were to find and take the Bible, which is the blueprint for the church, and you were to restore the church back to its original doctrines, ordinances, faith, character, practice, then you would find the first century church alive and functioning within a 21st century society and culture. And so that's kind of, that's kind of the effort of the restoration movement. And I share that with you, not to say that we've got it all figured out because we don't, but as a church, Journey Church is a part of that restoration movement, effort, attempt, and desire to restore the church. That's what I, I think we need to kind of understand what we're trying to do. Now, we're not really Protestants because we're not protesting anything, right? Uh, Our nature is not to complain and protest and criticize anybody else. So we're not really Protestants. The restoration movement is a unity movement that calls calls believers to be Christians only, not to take any other name, not to be critical of anybody who does, but not to take any other name but Christian. In fact, some of the beliefs and the core values of the movement are expressed in these words. First of all, we are Christians only. We are not the only Christians, not the only Christians. I think we need to keep that in mind. You know, we're not the only ones who are striving to do what God's called us to do. And there are people in all sorts of places and all sorts of churches that are are definitely Christians, right? The second thing is let Christian unity be our polar star. That was kind of the things that, one of the things they said, we're not trying to be divisive or, or pulling away. We're just saying, let unity be our polar star. Another, in essentials, unity in opinion, liberty, and all things love. 
So if there are certain things the Bible says, we want to stand on those things and do them. But if there are things that leave room for opinion, then you've got freedom and liberty to do that. But let's just love one another. Let's love one another above and over everything else. Another is the church of Jesus Christ on earth is essentially, intentionally, and constitutionally one. There is one church. And that's what the Bible says. You can think about it. One church, one faith, one baptism. There is one church, right? Not a whole bunch of churches. We're all the body of Christ, all believers. Another, no creed but Christ, no book but the Bible, no name but the divine. I mean, that's pretty important when you think about it. We don't have any other authoritative words other than the Bible itself. No name but the divine name of Jesus. Where the scriptures speak, we speak. Where the scripture is silent, we're silent. We're not writing books or adding things to it. God, you know, books of discipline or anything. Uh, Whatever the Bible has to say, let's speak there. Let's let the rest be opinion. We do Bible things in Bible ways called Bible things by Bible names. That was a, a priority for them. And the New Testament is not our, excuse me, is our only rule of faith and practice. And so from that would be what would be called a New Testament church. Now, the early leaders in this church involved, um, include people like Alexander and Thomas Campbell from Pennsylvania. That was one of the groups. Walter Scott, Barton W. Stone from right here in Kentucky. In fact, it's kind of interesting. The movement actually exploded in central Kentucky from a site up uh, north of Paris called the uh, Cane Ridge Meeting House. This was a church. I think there's a couple of pictures of it up there. Yeah. This was a church that was built uh, back in that day and is still in existence today. They've actually built a stone building around it to preserve it. So you can go in and uh, there's the pulpit. We've got pictures of all of our staff standing in the pulpit. We took a a, a trip up there back in the fall. It's still preserved. It's kind of cool. There's a lot of history there. And literally there was a huge camp meeting that held their revival, 30,000 people, they said, um, back um, a couple hundred years ago, which was a lot of the population of the country at that time, or the state at that time. So, uh, so it's kind of cool that we can go literally beyond the ground where a lot of this was taking place, a lot of the history was going on. But let me say this, that we are still in the process of restoring the church. No one's saying that we have it all figured out, right? But that's our attempt and our desire. And we always have to resist the pressure of inserting our opinion and traditions and making them equal to the Bible. And we all do that in some way, our own personal convictions. We almost like this is gospel because it's true to me. And what we need to do is have a return to the knowledge and dependence upon the scripture and a return to the passion of the gospel. And that's one reason why I wanted to go through the book of Acts to kind of show you how passionate they were about sharing Jesus and how that we need that same kind of passion today. They were sent and we are as well. And the plea of the restoration movement is still refresh, is refreshing in its simplicity and its purity, I believe. Let's just be Christians, but let's be Christians only. You know, let's, let's do that. Let's be faithful. For us, now let's finish Acts, you know. Let's finish it up. But more importantly than just finishing the book, let's finish the mission that Christ has given to us, has given to them and to us today to help win the world, win our world to Christ, one person at a time. That's what they did. They didn't just convert masses of people. It was one person at a time because that's how people come to Jesus. And we need to keep the main thing, the main thing, and that is Jesus. He is the main thing above anything. He's more important than the church. The church is his bride. We are a part of the body of Christ, the church. Paul says it well in Colossians chapter 1. 
He says the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from whom, from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. What Paul is saying very eloquently is it's all about Jesus. The church is about Jesus. He is the head of the church and we are the body of Christ. And his purpose was to reconcile all of us to our heavenly father from our sin, our brokenness, to bring him back. And the way that one does that, to become a Christian today, is the same as it was in the early church, in the book of Acts, the pattern that we've been seeing. You must first of all believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. You must repent of your sins. Repenting just means that you return away from sin, and it involves not only godly sorrow for your sin, but a desire to live for Christ, an intention to put the past behind. You must confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Son of God. And you must be baptized into Christ for your sins to be forgiven and for the gift of the Holy Spirit and to begin this new life in Jesus Christ. And then you must live a faithful life of worship and service and obedience in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Seeing being a Christian is not a cultural thing. You're not a Christian because your family was or because you believe there's a God, you know. It's not just believing that God's real or Jesus is real. Being a Christian means that we've made a decision to follow Christ and let him lead our lives. We are sold out to him. And we shouldn't call ourselves that unless we truly are endeavoring intentionally in a relationship with Christ. And so today, to conclude, let me just ask you or invite you to make a decision, which is what has to happen in every case. In our study in the book of Acts, and every person that Paul talked to and Barnabas and shared Jesus, they had to make a decision. And today, my challenge is to you to make a decision to give your life to Christ. And if you're at that point, you've never done that before, uh, I want to encourage you to to, to just step forward. I'm going to be up. Tony will be here and we'll be available just to talk to you about your next step. We don't have to do it all this morning. We can sit down and privately discuss this. But, but it's important that knowing the call to Christ, that you've responded in your life to make that decision. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for this morning and for your word. Father, we know that your church is not perfect because it's made of individuals. But God, we are the body of Christ in our goal, our quest to reach perfection And God, may we not look back and be critical of anyone, but just make that our desire, our goal, to be the people you've called us to be. Lord, I thank you that you have brought your church through so much in the years in our history. And Father, we know that the future of the church is glorious, that we're going to be with you forever. And Father, I pray that we would do our best to be that perfect, clean, pure bride that the Bible speaks of without spot or blemish, Lord. Not because of our own goodness, but because of Jesus and taking our sins away. Lord, we love you. We worship you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.